This podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme and is brought to you with the support of BPI France. You're listening to the Fintech Podcast, the show that goes deep into the stories, the successes and failures that went into creating some of the world's most fantastic fintechs. Gottkin, and in this episode, Georg Ludwigsson was once Iceland's top mathlete and creator of a Tomb Raider topping video game, but it took the global financial crisis to help turn Maniga into reality. A lot of the software talent that had been working for the Icelandic banks that collapsed were now available and they needed financial software. Also, the recapitalized banks, they were under a lot of pressure to give relief to households and help them kind of cope with crash in purchasing power and this shock of the, of the financial crisis. And, and part of that was um, help you understand and manage your money through personal finance management. So our solutions, we, we, the Icelandic banks were some of the first to introduce that in Europe. And that was a great reference. Georg Ludvigsson, a founder and CEO of Maniga. Thanks so much for joining me on the FNTech podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, and uh, I think this is a first for us. Uh, you're in Iceland, uh, which is obviously where you're from. Uh, how are things there in, uh, in in Reykjavik, I guess? Yeah, they're, uh, we've done pretty well containing the, um, the virus, um, mostly because we have only one gateway into the country. It's almost like a city state. Reykjavik is two thirds of the population, one airport. So uh, um, life has been fairly normal with, with some restrictions, but now um, and vaccination is, is, is picking up. We also had a volcanic eruption here uh, started a few weeks ago that has now taken over the headlines. It's a, quite a spectacle. You can drive for 30 minutes from the city and, and see it. It's a really amazing thing to, to see. It, it's magical. And I thought Icelanders would, you know, just take volcanic eruptions in their stride in the same way that we would, you know, like a like a, I know, a, a, an accident on the motorway or something here. But, uh, yeah, but yeah, I that, guess that, that's the... what you'd think. There's a second one I, I get to personally see in my lifetime. They only happen every five years. And most of them are in some places where you can't really get close to them. So being able to get close and, and experience one is, um, is not that common, even in an island that has one of every three volcanoes in the world. Right. Well, there's a there's our top fact of the day. Well, look, um, obviously, we're not here to talk about, uh, you know, uh, geogra- uh, geolo- geological phenomena. Um, so perhaps we should speak about Maniga a little bit. Uh, this is your fintech. Uh, it's, it's what is it? It's like a kind of white labeled digital bank for other banks and other digital banks. How does it work? What is it? What do you do? Yeah, I mean, uh, Sure. I, I started Maniga in the wake of the financial crisis that hit like 12 years ago, 2008-9. Um, I mean, I've always been passionate about innovation at the intersection of finance and technology. I'm a personal finance nerd, um, helping friends and family how to think about money. And, and uh, so when I started Manika, we were pioneers of uh, personal finance management software uh, in, in Europe. And, and we figured, okay, the the natural place to help people manage their money inside is inside their digital banking. So, so that's our, our way to market. So we have since then worked with banks to upgrade their digital banks into a kind of more of an advisor. I think the original vision was like when the online banks first came 25 years ago, they were kind of automating the teller function. Now banks need to do the same for the advisor function. And now with COVID, and branches clo- not being accessible, I think 
everyone realizes if we can't recommend and our products and, and help people through our apps, then um, I mean that, that we have to do that to stay relevant and, and close to our customers. So we, we partner with banks to help them evolve their digital banking into more of a kind of advisor or a coach type user experience. Um, so who, who would you be uh, competing with in that space? Because I guess you're, you're not quite as, um, you know, f- providing a full white label bank like someone like Solaris is, for example, to, to even non-fintechs. But, but where, where do you kind of see no, the pre- spectrum? No, precisely. You- I think we, we would power not the core banking functions, but a lot of the rest. Um, so um, um, we connect to the core banking systems. We help, for example, one of our latest products is Carbon Insights, helping uh, users understand their carbon footprint, which now is a very kind of uh, substantial number of people are interested in doing that. That's a good thing to do in your mobile bank because you have the transactions there. We uh, help people create budgets, financial plans, and so on. So there's a series of of companies that that we compete with in, in, in that space that are helping expand the core banking away from just the core banking in, into more broader advisory function. So who would uh, be your arch rival, your, your nemesis, if you like? Yeah, so we, I mean, we would cite a, a few companies, uh, uh, a Strands has, has historically, uh, a Spanish company, been, been, been one of our uh, competitors. We, we compete with some of the open banking players like, like Tink. We have companies like Personetics that are adding um, intelligence and advice to digital banking. Um, companies like Money4 um, and, um, yeah, to, to name a few. And you've got quite a few big names as both your clients and as your investors, right? Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, we're primarily, we're a global player, but primarily a European player. We uh, work with, uh, we've been privileged to work with many of the largest banks in uh, in Europe. So we have like Unicredit group um, uh, and the, we have BPCE, the second largest bank in France, Commerzbank in Germany, Santander in Spain, Swedbank in Sweden and, and Nordea in the Nordic. So, um, and, and our path has been to um, kind of work closer and closer with those big banks. They have trusted us as an innovation partner. So uh, some years ago, we um, we also started taking investment from, from some of them. Many of these banks have an investment arm and they like to Especially if they bet on a partner as a kind of very strategic for the future, then uh, having an equity relationship as well, we we have great experience with that. That has strengthened the relationship and um, and created more of a sense of partnership. And plus, it's been a good source of of capital. And, and what kind of scale or traction have you been getting? Can you give us a sense of uh, the number of banks that you work with, uh, revenues, and perhaps uh, the growth of those revenues year on year? <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, um, we work with um, 150 banks um, across uh, 35 countries. Again, primarily a European player, 80% of our revenue comes comes from Europe, but we've been growing lately also in the Middle East and uh, Asia Pacific. Um, and uh, But but Europe is our um, where we are market leaders. Um, yeah, our, uh, our revenue is... Um, is uh, approaching 15 million uh, euros. And um, yeah, we, we've grown uh, in, in, a, in a quite healthy way. Um, uh, for the last week, we don't publish our exact growth rates, but, uh, but no, business is, um, is, is, is pretty good. There was um, 
we feared there would be some slowdown when, when COVID hit and initially there was some hesitation on new projects, but um, all our kind of uh, digital banking has increased in, uh, in importance. Volumes have been up 20 to 50% and uh, investment is, is fully back. So um, we expect we are on track to get one of our best years in terms of growth this year. Right. And I think that unlike many fintechs, uh, as well as differing from them in that you're not in, uh, with the greatest of respect, one of uh, the world's leading fintech hubs. Um, but at the same time, you differ because you've kind of been profitable in the past and you're, you're kind of pretty close to profitability as well, right? Yes, correct. I mean, we are, uh, you can say, a mature startup or, a, or an adolescent company. So, um, so we, um, yeah, I mean, we, we've had our ups and downs like, like every company, but, but fortunately, we've usually taken two or three steps forward for one step back. And, um, and we have a pretty solid foundation of, of customers and, um, um, and, and yeah, we, we care about unit economics and, and profitability. Yeah, I think so we, we try to balance these things. We are now, yeah, cash flow wise, uh, break even, and um, we, we expect profitable growth going forward. But also we see so many opportunities that we may consider stepping on the gas pedal and, and prioritize growth above profits. We are venture funded, so growth matters a lot as well. But we're trying to balance that. Okay. You said before that you were, uh, you're a, you've always been a bit of a personal finance nerd. Um, I think you've also been a bit of a maths nerd as well. I think you were, you were a pretty uh, you know, good student. You were a mathlete at, at some point. Can you uh, tell me a bit about the early years when you, you showed your, uh, your talents and your, your, your nerdiness uh, initially came through? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can. I, I, yeah, math was one of these subjects that I was I was um, lucky enough to to kind of felt was quite came quite natural for me from from a young age, and um, and that was one of my early kind of developments, and and it gave me confidence. in in high school, I, I I won the Icelandic mathematics competition for high school students, and that allowed me to go on the Icelandic team that played at the Olympics in Toronto in, in math in, in 1995. I was 19 years old and that like opened my eyes to the world. Toronto was this big kind of global city and I was there with a uh, thousand people from all countries that were uh, excelled at math, which was uh, for three weeks. That was a great experience, but also... How did you do? I did uh, pretty well. I was the top of the Icelandic team, but I was... Overall, I think I was maybe a little bit below the 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 the, the center. So I was maybe I think roughly half the contestant did, did better than me. But for I mean, when comparing to the Chinese team that had been like practicing eighteen hours for those Chinese many years, there, there was no contest. Like we, there was no chance. But uh, I, I think on on the social aspect, I, one of the lessons I took from there is that half the people there were super nerdy and like socially retarded so i also got this sense i, I don't want to that's not kind of who i want to be so um but it but it gave me a lot of confidence it, it was one of the things that then kind of put me on a path of okay i, I can excel and 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 gave me confidence then to start businesses and, and and take risks and 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 that was so it was a great early kind of confidence builder of of, of my career even yeah and, and it also influenced my than choice of career in, in computer science and, and software engineering. Right, because you were a software engineer by trade when I think you when you came out of uh, school or university in, in Iceland and, and, and I think you, you built a really successful game. I think you told me it was it was even bigger than Tomb Raider. 
in Iceland, at least. <laughs> you have a good memory. Yeah, it was uh, like we, we, we were graduating from software engineering. We had some consulting engineers that wanted to hire us. We thought that was like the most boring job. The internet was starting at the time. This was the dot-com bubble was growing. This was 98. So three of friends um, out of software engineering, we decided to start a company. We had no clue what we were going to do. Just we didn't want to work with these boring consulting engineers. So we did ad hoc software development and then we landed on why not build a computer game and um which we did for the summer of 98 we published it and and yeah it was marginally better better selling than tomb raider in iceland but it was the only kind of native icelandic game so a lot of the parents thought yeah this is more educational and uh it, it was partly kind of uh telling you it was edutainment type but what was the what was the game getting you about your um it was called the time traveler and you went back in time to big periods in history in Iceland, like the settlement era, the Christi- adoption of Christianity and, the, and and so on. So you would learn and it was in the style of the kind of monkey island and, and these um, these games that were popular at the, at the time. So, But it was uh, mostly just a great learning experience for us. Um, all of us that started that business then went on to start other businesses and um, uh, achieved a, a lot of things. So, so that early experience and, and the quality of the software and um, and many of these things was, was highly questionable. We were learning as we as we went, but um, it was great lessons for for a, a kind of young software engineer to go through. Also, having to do other things like selling and marketing and just making it work on your own without knowing anything. That that was very helpful early lesson. And and this was uh, the beginnings of uh, I think it was called Diamond Software for you. Your kind of first startup. Yeah, that was my first startup, and and we built this computer game, and and um, we were considering a, a track there. But then we pivoted into a very different uh, era. We we took investment and uh, went into enterprise mobility. So helping um, the, the the mobile internet was set to take off there with the Nokia phones, the first one that were internet enabled with very primitive browsers you might remember the 7110 from the matrix movie was was there and um everyone thought that's gonna take off like like the the other internet and and so we built technology that could take normal web pages and translate it to those phones and we had a big contract with nokia that was attempting to take on research in motion with her blackberries at the time and so we dove into that for a few years and um it was, again, a great experience. We were there also working very closely with Nokia. I went to Finland a lot. But in the end, before they launched this major enterprise mobility product, then they they they, um, they killed the project and in one of their many reorgs at the time. And uh, because the guy leading guys leading it lost in the in-house politics. They also said our analysis show this was 2003. Mobile Internet's not going to take off until 2007 or eight. And in hindsight, they, they were spot on with, with that analysis. So um, mobile internet wasn't ready for prime time at the time, but it was another very good uh, kind of learning experience. Right, but when, when it came along, of course, Nokia, I don't think, was ready either. So uh, perhaps some no, exactly. to be uh, to be ready a bit a bit more in advance. But that, so they so Nokia like became your biggest client. But then I think because they killed this project, it, it effectively, you know, put you on the path to to that company you know, uh, ending, right? Yeah, I mean, this was, uh, um, we had been profitable, we had a, a lot of revenue from this this project, but it also there had been some friction in the shareholder group. 
we had some dispute on on the ownership level and then once we lost this Nordea project we had a lot of money in the bank but we decided to liquidate the company the the, the owners didn't want to work together so this was also another big lesson that like unless you keep alignment in the shareholder group i mean your your company is is, is dead in the water so there was a lot of a lot of lessons there as well and we also were super engineering oriented we had like the really the cream of the crop of, of Iceland's engineering talent, software engineers at the time. But like when it came to sales and marketing, we were really clueless. Uh, we were lucky to get this Nokia project. But then, so that was another lesson for me. Yes, technology matters a lot, but unless you have your sales and marketing together, that probably matters more for success. So at that time I was doing hardcore software engineering and, and was one of the lead tech people, but it, all my startups ever since, I haven't coded since then. I've been on the business side, sales and marketing. and um, But having that deep technical understanding has also, I think, allowed me to do that better. And the disharmony among the founders, that was because you didn't write things down to begin with and said who owns what? Is that is that kind of where it came from? Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there was some disharmony among the early founders, but uh, I think that was re resolved. And that was precisely because, yeah, you didn't write things down or be clear. And I think that's very common. And, and, and that's something I've fixed in later startups and it really has helped save big disputes. So you, you really talk about what's gonna happen, even if you don't plan to leave or, I mean, life happens and, and there can be all sorts of reasons. So you have to kind of be aligned on the journey uh, to, to begin with. And that's a common problem for, for startups. Uh, uh, but, but I think the bigger problem there was not the founder disharmony, it was the disharmony of the founders and then the lead investors that, that came in and wanted to do different things. So we just weren't fully aligned on, on what to do after this Nokia project. And how did you feel when it all kind of came crashing down or when you all had to go? It was an emotional roller coaster. I mean, we, we felt mistreated in, in some ways, but in hindsight, again, we founders also wanted to just go to the moon and like I can understand the other side much better with, with perspective. But also it, it felt like a lifetime of, of, of um, learning experience. I was still young at, at this time, 27, when it ended. And um, so, yeah, I, I, and then I was firmly set on the path of, of, of entrepreneurship before I was considering a PhD in artificial intelligence or something like that. But now kind of, yeah, I, I, I had my eyes on an MBA which, which I then pursued later. In the meantime, I took a job as head of sales for a small software company only to learn selling enterprise software. So I was a traveling salesman in the US for two years, meeting Fortune 500 companies, selling them very kind of specific technical software. And, and that was uh, another great learning experience, probably the, one of the best decisions I, I made uh, right. to, to, to do that. And then you went to, as you say, you, you went to pursue your... Um MBA, you went to Harvard Business School, I think, in, in 2006. Uh, yes. Was that another kind of eye-opening experience on the same level as when, you know, the the young man from Reykjavik found himself in Toronto at the, was it, is it called the Math Olympics? I don't know, as a mathlete? Yeah, Math, math yes. Yeah, yeah, very different. I mean, I, 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 I felt I had matured a lot. I, I, I already felt like I was a global citizen at, at the time. So, um, uh, but, but no, I mean, that was also investment in a kind of uh, in your personal journey and, and and i knew i wanted to do an mba to get formal skills in all sorts of um, uh, areas and, and and then the prior experiences helped me get into a top school like by 
telling the story of yes, I'm good at math and 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 software and technically, but also I've mastered selling. So that combination of the salesperson that is also I think was was rare enough, and and, and the entrepreneurial experience, these things. That, I mean, because you have to build a compelling story for 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 this highly competitive application. So so that was enough, and uh, and then that yeah, it was just a great personal growth experience. You meet like-minded people that are doing super impressive stuff from all over the world. And uh, that also gives you perspective and ideas and, and, um, and also confidence building, like, like the math experience in that when you feel you belong there, you can uh, hold your own or, or uh, with, with that kind of super impressive group of global elites, then yeah, you, you see, okay, I can do, do anything. And then I think what, You'd left Harvard by the time you founded your, your next startup uh, called uh, UpDown. I guess, you know, th- there's lots of startups have their ups and downs and you, you actually named your startup, I think, UpDown. Uh, yeah. What was what was that about and, and, and how did that? Uh, yeah, so at, at the time, I mean, we were, um, I had, was all constantly thinking about my next startup. I, I, I went to business school, but I was planning to go back to entrepreneurship, start more businesses. And I had also figured that I was passionate about intersection of finance and technology. I had a lot of personal finance interest. I was using Microsoft Money and Quicken and Mint.com was coming out, a new generation of personal finance software and startups, one, one in Boston called GCO. So it was a really kind of interesting time. And, and uh, one of my classmates, uh, a German guy, Michael Reich, um, came to me with this idea and we, people in the class that were interested in entrepreneurship were talking a lot um, uh, to start a, a, a social investing startup. So, so that was up down. So he, he, he was the, came with that idea. And so I started that with, with, with him um, uh, when we were both, both students at, at the time. So this was about kind of uh, social investing, helping people learn how to invest. So this was very realistic simulation of the stock market. Um, real, you, you could, uh, practice investing with million dollars of play money. There was also a competitive social element. There were like leaderboards and you, you could even earn real money if you consistently beat the market. And the, the, the big idea, and this was backed by um, a hedge fund investor, was to uh, try to create market beating trading strategies from the footprint of a large number of kind of play money in, in investors that, that were practicing investing. So. We were targeting investment clubs. We our, our motto was we educate the next generation of investors. A lot of the U.S. investment clubs were using UpDown. And we were also trying to build the algorithms to detect, okay, who are the best traders? Why are they kind of and, – and then create a trading strategy that would somehow weigh those things they did and try to build a real portfolio back with real money, with, which we had from these hedge fund guy. But in the end, that algorithm – we never got confident enough to really test it with with big money. So so that aspect, uh, and and I don't think that has really been done today. It, it's a hard problem, but um, but very interesting one. We were also plotting this with Harvard Business School finance professor. Some said, yeah, do it like this, and you can do it. Others said this can never be done. It's very interesting, kind of intellectually to try to make that that happen. Um, but but and we we had around half a million users. And um, later, but but it never kind of that big part never took off. It was had some advertising revenue in the end. But yeah, it was sold to uh, to a larger player a, a few years later. 
Right. And and I guess subsequently, at least on the social investing side, there's obviously eToro now, which is... Yeah, uh, then there's been a new generation that, that has taken some similar concepts and, and, and made them really big, like eToro being being one, Covester another, and that, that had some similar concepts. Right. Okay, well, interesting thought the way that you could like kind of crowdsource investment strategies from uh, from people just uh, playing around with money. Uh, I remember actually registering the domain Fantasy Footsie uh, back in 2001 or something. And uh, the company I worked for back then offered me about 1200 quid uh, to buy it. And I said, no, 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 you know, needs more than that. And obviously, mm-hmm. that <laughs> that never came about. But look, uh, Georg, uh, don't go away, because uh, I just need to uh, remind our audience that this podcast is part of the Paris FinTech Forum Communities Programme for 2021. And in this special pandemic, period you can enjoy throughout the year top level live sessions with key industry players exclusive on-demand interviews such as this one and use our innovative digital networking capabilities to meet your peers develop your network create new business opportunities and to continue to build together the future of the fin and tech industry and you can find out more at www.parisfintechforum.com um, so, Georg, we've uh, we've kind of now your this is like your your second or third maybe startup up down, um, and then you've kind of I think you went back to Iceland uh, just in time for the global financial crisis, in which of course uh, Iceland and Icelandic banks uh, played a kind of starring cameo role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was that was interesting when I graduated. I had. Um, lot of interest in, in, in finance and, and had uh, already uh, an idea for what became Manika. Uh, but um, still, I, I, I took a hedge fund job with, with an Icelandic hedge fund that was riding high at the time in, in 2008. But uh, I was due to start in October. Um, <laughs> that, that never happened because, yeah, the financial crisis came and that hedge fund had a lot of outflows and there was no case to, I was supposed to be an offensive player there. So in the end, yeah, so... Um, not the right time to career switch into finance. So, um, yeah. Especially I went in back. Iceland. <laughs> no, I, I, exactly. So, so went went back to this and, um, and, and started Minika. Uh, and that was, um, I mean, Iceland was, 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 was the perfect breeding ground for that because uh, first, a lot of the software talent that had been working for the Icelandic banks that collapsed were now available and they knew financial software. Like my two co-founders, uh, they came from the Icelandic banks. They've been building their online banking. Then um, also the recapitalized banks, they were under a lot of pressure to give relief to households and help them kind of cope with a crash in purchasing power and the shock of the, of the financial crisis. And, and part of that was um, help you understand and manage your money through personal finance management. So our solutions, we, we, the Icelandic banks were some of the first to introduce that in Europe. And that was... Um, great reference then we sold it to some medium-sized scandinavian banks and then we moved upwards to some of the biggest banks in 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 europe so so that early kind of uh, breeding ground from from the financial crisis what was very kind of good for this kind of um, and, and that's what happens i mean you need to find opportunities in a, in a crisis and, and see what you can do and that's uh, i think statistically um, more successful startups are, are started in, in that those times than, than the others. Also, I mean, mm. the cost of building it, the opportunity cost for people looking for jobs is lower. There are so many things why starting a business when there's a downturn or a crisis is, is, a, is a good time to do it. Yeah, amazing the number of uh, you know founders we have here on the F and Tech podcast who started around the time of uh, you know the global financial crisis um, and 
and yeah, and it, and it seems, especially also in Iceland, I assume, you know, the cost of labor, uh, the cost of, uh, you know, premises uh, and all those other things uh, would have plummeted as well. I'm just wondering, although it was obviously good for for you to start the business or to have the business at that time, I mean, as an Icelander, you know, experiencing this, pretty much everyone who's listening to this will have will remember and will, of course, have experienced the global financial crisis in some shape or form. But just remind us, and certainly for those who perhaps don't remember or or didn't know in the first place, just how big a deal was it in Iceland? Can you perhaps paint a picture? Yeah, it was was a pretty big deal. I mean, the the banks have been growing like crazy, so they were like a very big part of the economy. And and they grew way out of proportion of, of... of Iceland's economy, like their balance sheets were 10 times the uh, national uh, gross domestic product. And um, because they were so big, and, and there was kind of a flaw in the European regulation system, you could build a bank in any kind of European country, including Iceland, and then do business elsewhere. But some of the schemes, like the insurance schemes to uh, kind of back up those banks were local in nature. So that made no sense. You had banks that were becoming big, even on European scale, and and very risky, very, very aggressive. That that, that, was, that that strategy worked great in a, in the upswing, but then yeah, when that came crashing down, even if the government wanted to bail them out, like they did in many countries, it, it it just couldn't. They were so much bigger, so so there was no alternative but to let them um, go bankrupt. Uh, so which is what happened, and um, and then yeah, bec- uh, the currency I think dropped forty um, percent. Uh, salaries came crashing down a lot of people like uh, iceland felt had felt kind of rich for the first time and a lot of people maybe not so wisely had 80 or 100 percent of their savings in the icelandic economy many in these banks that crashed instead of diversifying properly so it was a multiple shock to many households they purchasing power drop a lot of savings kind of were wiped out unemployment which Iceland cares a lot about and has been proud to have close to zero for a long time had suddenly went up to 10 12 percent so it was a everyone felt like a, a big shock especially in the beginning like there were even worries there would be kind of uh, government would run out of money and we couldn't buy just basic goods or, or stuff so there was a lot of fear that sat in that people had never experienced in their lifetime that we're a Nordic kind of really safe good safety net country you can always go home and in, in, in the safety of Iceland, but that, that kind of feeling of security was kind of taken away and that created a lot of anger and shock. And then, but still, I mean, the fundamentals were good and the, the real economy was always relatively sound, the, the fishing, the, and then tourism and, and the other industries just went on all cylinders in the following year. So we bounced back pretty, pretty fast and the mm-hmm. feeling of security came back quite strongly. And, and, and then, I mean, by COVID, uh, even though yeah, tourism is obviously devastated now, the uh, the state of the of the of the economy and government was so good that I mean Iceland's in an excellent shape to kind of uh, weather that very well. So, but it was a huge lesson. It, it left something in the psyche of the of the country. Now, now it's fading a bit, but it's like everyone that went through the Great Depression like that made an impact on them. It, it's that kind of thing in in a way. So, I hope it will. Make Icelanders, and, and we have evidence of that. They are now more careful. They are more less risky in a, in, a, in a good way. I think they're more prudent with their finances. So, so it was a good lesson in, in that sense. And I suppose at the same time, 
you know, there was a lot of talk about so-called moral hazard, um, you know, in the UK and other countries that, you know, if the banks know that they're too big to fail, that they're going to be bailed out, then they'll take more yeah. risks. But of course, the Icelandic banks learned the lesson that actually um, you go bust. There, there, there is no uh, government backstop there or there wasn't at the time. And so uh, and actually, if I recall correctly, you know, the Icelandic economy recovered much faster than, for example, the UK economy, uh, which did, yeah. um, you know, uh, bail out its banks. But I'm just wondering you know, against this backdrop, which was effectively like a Great Depression for, for Iceland, you know, how did it feel to be running a startup? I mean, it's anyway an interesting question to ask, how, what is it like to run a fintech from Reykjavik, which, you know, uh, we're not talking about London or Paris or, or Frankfurt, we're talking about Reykjavik. Uh, yeah. How is it there? And, and it must have been a bit strange almost to be running a company that is managing to find traction and get growth because you're dealing mainly with uh, banks outside of the country. And yet at the same time, when you walk out the office doors, you know, you're exposed to what is, you know, a, a very depressed economy and probably a, a very depressed populace. Yeah, but uh, also, I mean, I, I think there, there was also some lack of perspective. Yes, everyone felt poor, but still, I mean, the, the quality of life went maybe back in time 15 years and it's not, not like anyone felt poor in 95 or 2000. So it was, a, I think, it, it was a bit exaggerated. Iceland was still a rich country. No one was near going hungry or anything like that. So it was... Uh, more of a psychological thing and relative thing. Um, but um, I mean, Iceland, I think, has the same dynamic. I mean, it, it, the entrepreneurship culture is, is strong, like like in some of the other Nordics, like like in Israel, I think. One of the benefits of coming from a tiny country is that you have to think globally from the beginning. And that's what we did with Manika. We only built solutions we think go anywhere. We're not building it based on the Icelandic tax or pension system. Um, and as an example, and we everything's in English, like you really think, and we didn't even try to build the sales and marketing part in, in Iceland. Um, so I, I moved to Stockholm and built that from there. So you, you just are born thinking globally, uh, which is what you have to do if you have any real ambitions in a, in a tiny country. And, and, and that, that is a big benefit um, compared to some of the businesses built from, from larger countries like France, the UK, Germany, that, that have a substantial home market. It's also a liability, but, but I mean, if, if you play it to your strength, I think Israel is the best example of a small home market that is thriving, and partly because I think of that mindset and, and necessity because, because your home market is small. Right. And I'm just curious to know, uh, Maniga, where, where does that name come from? Who, who chose that name? Does it mean something in Icelandic, or is it just a random...? Yeah, it, it, it's... Um... Uh, that's one of the trickiest decisions you're faced with when you sort of is what, what to name it. And we, we had a temporary name, Mammon, the, the god of greed, and we thought that was kind of counter-psychologically interesting. But then a lot of maybe somewhat religious people thought that was just kind of almost insulting, like we this false god from the Bible, you can't use that. And so, okay, we, we figured quickly, that's not going to fly, that's too risky, we don't want to insult anyone. So... We, we went to, back to the drawing board. And then, yeah, Maniga is from an Icelandic um, children's song that everyone knows. It's, it's a word that it's, it doesn't mean anything, but it rhymes with money. So there's a hymn like Enika, Menika, everyone's talking about Penika, which is money. So it rhymes with mon a certain kind of form of the word money. And, and, and so it, it has a money association in, in Iceland. But also the .com uh, domain was available for $1,000, which we could manage. And um, it was... Um, we felt like it, it, it would fly internationally. So it's a, it's a simple name that like anyone can use. So yeah, that, that was, that was the, um, the origin. 
Yeah, sometimes it's better to err on the side of caution with names. I was originally going to call this podcast the Filth Podcast, F-I-L-F, which yeah. was going to stand for fintech I'd like to finance, but uh, some people but, thought but that we, perhaps but we have a, a, been misinterpreted. Of, yeah, we, we had, we, it wasn't perfect, though. Like We learned later that, that too many people from English-speaking countries are associated with something like meningitis, which like is a disease of, of, of the brain so you if, if something it, it sounds like a disease and and that that we don't want, want either so so but but it, but that's not a big uh, kind of thing yeah right and uh, I, I mean just you know on a personal level i know you know we, we talked about the stresses of uh, of iceland as an economy during the financial crisis but of course you've been running businesses now for for many years uh you know some have done better than others obviously maniga I guess it's fair to say is doing the best of all so far. But of course, running a running a fintech is you know you have to be all in, um, and one imagines that that can take like a, a, a toll on one's you know personal life as well. Yeah, I mean that, that that's a huge topic. I mean uh, I'm a bit obsessed with that. But but yeah, I mean it, it does. I mean starting a business is a huge challenge, and and it really takes energy, and, and especially if you do it for so long. I mean it. They're always ups and downs. It's an emotional roller coaster. So, I, yeah, one one has to be through a lot in, in that. And, and my story, I think, is is typical. And and and, and it, it's not all glamorous. Yes, you have your highs, which are very high, and and you kind of really feel alive and the energy that you're building a business. And 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 so you get a lot from it, especially if it's an area that you're passionate about, which which I am. I think, yes, we're building a business and trying to grow it, but also. I mean, we're a highly purpose-driven company. If we're successful, then we're helping millions of people better manage their money. And that, that's a big deal. That's one of the leading problems in the world, money worries and unnecessary kind of kind of getting yourself into financial dire straits. So, so, so it really gives you meaning to see that you're helping people. And, and, like, and that's also my kind of positive outlook on capitalism. If you build the business in the right way that has a strong purpose, and it's also profitable. That scales, unlike charity, which like you also have to get that, do that, fund that again and again. So if you can create a win-win that also improves the world, like some of the environmental companies are trying to do that, that's great. But then, the, yeah, there's the personal toll. So, I mean, I spend less time with friends and family, especially outside my kind of immediate family, that uh, than I would like to do. I haven't developed my hobbies, and and I divorced eight years ago. Um, five years into Manika, part of the, it's complicated, like, like any divorce, but part of the reason was working really hard uh, for the first few years. And, and so, and that was really hard. That's one of the hardest things you do in life, like everyone that goes to a divorce knows. So these things um, kind of uh, all, I mean, ideally you have to be ready in so many ways. You have to have really strong support from your friends and family, and you have to be ready psychologically to do this. And then, Things change along the way, and it and, and it's it's not always easy. I think that that's um, I mean there are lots of reasons to to start a business, and I I'm a I'm an evangelist. I, I think the world needs more people to take risk and, and start businesses, but doing so because you think you have freedom or it, that it's going to be easy or a kind of that that's not a reason to do it. It, it really is going to take a toll. And now building Mimiga is something I'm super proud of. I would never, I mean, I've, again, grown a lot. I learned a lot of new things. And it's a very versatile job. You get to wear many hats. And first it's about building the product. Then it's about selling it. Then it's about building the organization and and, and strategy and, and so on. All of this is extremely rewarding. And, and, and But it's still something that I would probably do not see myself 
doing at this level with like 150 people now there there are people issues there are all sorts of challenges that come with that so I envision maybe other things in the next chapters not that I'm about to leave Manika I think the journey has really been more interesting I definitely a few more years left but when the right time I, I probably not forever and and, and, and then I, I probably want to do other things at a more relaxed pace right so uh, I mean do you think you've got more of a balance now or, or that's something that it'll wait for for the yeah for I'm the not sure balance is the right word I think it's trade-off and choices like I, I have three kids I mean I've always been clear that that's I, I mean that they they are important so I've, I've I've prioritized that I've taken time to spend with my kids I uh, I've, uh, I even took some paternity leave uh, way back 20 years ago when my first kid was was born. And uh, now I have a one-year-old. And um, yeah, because of the pandemic, I've not been traveling. I've, I've seen him every day. So so that I do and the business. But then, yeah, when it comes to extended family, friends, hobbies, I think that's something I have chosen not to focus much on in this period of my of my life. Okay. Well, look, looking forward to seeing what, what hobbies you develop uh afterwards but uh just one uh kind of final question um which is what i ask everyone at the end of the uh, of this podcast which is what's the weirdest or craziest thing you've ever done or built in your life yeah i mean uh maybe i, I the, the, my first entrepreneurial experience in hindsight it, it, it's pretty weird i was selling earthworms to to fishermen when i was uh, starting at age 12 and and so i went out with a flashlight um, in kind of the backyards of my street and uh, kind of picking them and during night in the rain, like uh, they were very slippery and putting them in a bucket and then storing them. And sometimes, yeah, I would hear what people were doing in the bedrooms and it felt really kind of strange. And, and then I, um, yeah, was, uh, what was, was, was feeding them um, porridge and um, kind of nurturing them. So I had a farm of earthworms and this felt like supernatural at the time, but like in in hindsight, uh, yeah, it, it, it feels weirder and weirder. Right. Well, I think that definitely qualifies as a uh, as a weird or uh, or crazy thing. Um, there was actually a really interesting quote that um, that I saw uh, recently, which uh, was which I, I think you know applies very nicely to startups as well. And uh, I think uh, the quote is from Franklin Roosevelt actually, and he says, "We consider too much the good luck of the early bird, and not enough the bad luck." of the early worm and i think that's a really good <laughs> lesson for startups in the sense that yeah. sometimes it's possible to be too early uh, mm-hmm. and maybe it's uh, maybe it's you know it's it's not the early bird that's uh, catching the worm maybe you're rather than being the early bird you're being the early worm and you're just going to be somebody's uh, somebody's breakfast but exactly. um, but that's a, an okay. interesting uh, kind of thing to uh, to bear in mind uh, for the future perhaps but uh, i'm afraid we are out of time um, but i really want to thank you for a really interesting uh, and you know personal and discussion about your business and personal experiences in, in founding and co-founding uh, maniga and uh, of course wish you and your team the best of luck as uh, hopefully iceland and the rest of the world emerges from the pandemic great it was my pleasure thank you You know, from the moment Georg told me how his fintech got its name, I knew exactly how to end this podcast by asking him to sing us the Maniga song. (laughs) Ah, that's uh, my voice is also uh, Uh, not not in the best of shape. (laughs) I'm coming out of cold, but Enika, Menika, Atlitalum, Penika. Sukati Pukati, 
Kaupa meira fíneri. That's great. That's <laughs> great. That's definitely yeah. a first on the podcast. And uh, I really appreciate your, you appreciate your being a good sport. So uh, mm-hmm. thank you very much. I'll be humming that yeah. to my kids later on. Phrase it as a challenge and then I'm a sucker and I always do it. Yeah. yeah. Great. Thanks so much. You take care. Great. Thank you. Have a good one. What a great sport. So thank you, Georg Ludvigsen, and thank you for listening to the FinTech podcast with me, Elliot Gotkin, now part of the Paris FinTech Forum Communities Programme. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get updates and listen to all previous episodes via the website, www.parisfintechforum.com. If you've got any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can find us on LinkedIn and on Twitter at ParisFinForum or at Elliot Gotkin. That's it from me. Thanks again to BPI France for sponsoring this podcast. We'll be back again next week for more of the best F in tech. Hope you'll join us again then. Bye-bye.